I knew I had to start the book outside of the country because I had to find distance between me and this and the United States because while you're here and you're in it, you're constantly having to battle and fight just to keep yourself upright, just to get up in the morning. You're constantly having to deal with this place that's coming at you. Um, outside of the country, at least I have the distance so that I can reflect on my experience. I can reflect on the country. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to Let's Give a Damn. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and on this show, I sit down for meaningful conversations with volunteers, nonprofit leaders, business leaders, activists, politicians, actors, musicians, athletes, and all kinds of people who are giving a damn and striving to live meaningful lives. Thank you for hitting play and for showing up this week. I'm so incredibly glad you're here. Friends, we have some incredible conversations coming up on the podcast. In the next couple of months, you'll get to hear from actor and activist Adrian Grenier, political commentator, author, and activist Van Jones, professor and climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, and many, many others. Please stay tuned, subscribe to the podcast, donate to our Patreon, and please tell all of your friends. We rely on you listening and telling others about us. That's how we're going to grow reach more people. Thank you so much for all that you do. This week, we're bringing back an oldie, but a goodie. One year ago, I invited author, professor, and damn giver, Eddie Glaude Jr. to join me on the show to talk about the state of our world, the state of America, his incredible book titled Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own, and I asked him to convince me to stay in the United States when all I want to do and all my family and I want to do most days is leave this country. Our conversation exceeded my expectations 100 times over. I'm so grateful for Eddie's life, work, leadership, and his Twitter account, which encourages and helps me in so many ways. So if you're on Twitter and you don't follow Eddie, you should change that today. I'm bringing this conversation back because it's more relevant than ever, and I believe we need to continue to wrestle with the same questions and ideas James Baldwin was wrestling with several decades ago. We still have so much work to do in this country and in our world. So if you didn't listen to this conversation a year ago and are listening now, you're in for a real treat. And if you did listen a year ago, let's be honest. You don't remember what you ate for lunch yesterday, so you should probably listen again. Before we jump in, a quick reminder that you can, anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, recommend future guests, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now, without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Eddie Glaude Jr. Let's go. Eddie Glaude Jr., welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I am so thrilled to be talking to you for a bunch of reasons, and uh, maybe different than some of the other interviews that you do. I don't know. I've, I've watched a bunch. You're in high demand right now, which is another reason why I'm super grateful for your time today. We're grateful. But I want to spend, I want to kind of split the time here 
I want to spend some time on your writings and especially talk about James Baldwin and what his vision offers for us right now in 2020, because we need him, you know, more than ever. Right. But I also want to get to know you as a person and get to know your story, because the work that you have grown into, what you're doing now is incredibly important work that will have uh, that will help shape. I think what America is becoming, what the United States of America is becoming. And and so I but I want to get some of that backstory, right? So before we jump into books that you've written in the past that are very helpful and also begin again, which you know I've got a copy right here. It's rocking my world. I've been listening to audiobook and reading it to kind of doubly get it. And fantastic book. Before we get to all that, why don't we hear some of first of all, you look amazing. I don't know if we're actually gonna put this video out, probably just audio, but Eddie is dressed to the nines, looks super sharp. Uh, and I am in a long sleeve tee in my dungeon of an office smoking a pipe. And that's just, I'm envious. Just, I'm envious. I'm envious. <laughs> yeah. And you have some of, you know, tell me real quickly about the bookshelf behind you, all those books behind you. What, what, yes. what are you trying to, obviously books are a big part of who you are, both from your author and also obviously a prolific reader, but what, what are you trying to show us here with those books? Usually when people kind of put books behind them, they're trying to make a statement. So what, what so are you this trying is to my, say? This is my home office. Okay. And uh, ever since I was a graduate student, I, I, I kind of imbibed a practice from Cornell West. And he would turn around books that were important to him, his walking, his walking partners, as he would call them. Um, and what I've done is I've, you know, some of the books are just important people like Chekhov and, and, and Beckett and the like, but also they're my colleagues. So mm. my colleagues at African-American studies, I have their books um, turned around so that folks can see the, the wonderful people that I have a chance to work with every day. So that's amazing. That's amazing. So uh, now that we have that out of the way, how, how good you look and how mediocre I look right now. Um, give us some of your story. Like, where do you where do you come from? Where did you grow up? Who were some of the people, places and things that shaped you into who you are today? And then we'll dive into your work. Sure. I'm a, I'm a country boy from the coast of Mississippi, uh, mm. born and raised in a town called Moss Point, right next to uh, Pascagoula, where Trent Lott was from, or mm. is from. Mm. Uh, and Pascagoula is uh, basically the white town, and Moss Point is basically the black labor force for the white town. Wow. So I grew up in a space that was predominantly African-American, although we lived, although I kind of uh, navigated in a much more uh, integrated environment, or I was one of three in most of my classes. So um, working class family, my mother uh, was part of the janitorial service for Ingalls Shipbuilding or the shipyard, and my dad was a postman. Um, so, but that, you know, being a letter carrier uh, gave us, afforded us a middle-class existence. Wow. And, um, you know, and then he realized he had precocious kids and he moved us from one side of town to the other. Um, and was just scary as hell growing up. Sure. Uh, uh, but uh, did everything possible to make sure that uh, uh, we could imagine ourselves in, in the most expansive terms possible. Just to be clear, one side of town to the other, the black side of town to the white, is that how you're framing that? Yeah. So we were, we, when, when I was relatively young, we lived on, on what was Rose Drive, and it was a place where, uh, when it rained hard, it would flood, uh, the sidewalks weren't necessarily paved, the baseball mm. diamond wasn't regularly cut. Um, and, um, you know, uh, we moved to the other side of town where, 
you know, the black bourgeois le- black bourgeoisie lived and, and, and the white elites lived. And they thought my dad would never survive because uh, he was bringing these four kids on this side of town. And my dad uh, uh, is, shall we say, a strong-willed man. <laughs> Tell me more about your parents. Obviously, you just pointed out that your dad was strong-willed. Like, how did they um, usually, not always, but usually when when I talk to my guests about uh, you know, and the parent structure always looks different, right? Sometimes, you know, one of the parents isn't there or aunts and uncles, grandparents, or they were orphaned or whatever. So it always looks different, but usually I can find like little, whether it's good or bad, you know, some of us had rough upbringings and, you know, parents that weren't whatever. So what, what was that like? What were your parents like? And what can you see in yourself today that was as a, a direct result of things they instilled in you? Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in a, in a household where my parents were relatively young. My mother had her first child in the ninth grade mm. uh, and dropped out of school. Um, and my dad uh, left home early to go to, to fight in Vietnam. Wow. So there's this, there's this uh, sense in which they grew up with their kids. Uh, my, my oldest sister, uh, my mother contracted German measles while she was pregnant. So my oldest mm. sister is severely handicapped. Um, and so they basically, my mother's been basically, uh, changing diapers for 50, 56 years. Wow. Um, so they grew up with us. Um, my dad, um, is, wasn't physically abusive, but you know, I remember sitting down to write my first book and it was going to be on emotional abuse because, you know, there was, it was strict. Um, he was exacting. The house was full of silence. There was not a lot of conversation. He scared me to death. Mm. He deposited a kind of fear in my gut from as early as I can remember remembering. Um, but, you know, he's the same guy who in Mississippi heat would deliver the mail, ate the same lunch every single day, wow. uh, a bologna sandwich with, with mustard. Um, he sweated out his belts. Those be- he's, you know, Mississippi heat is a unique kind of heat on the coast. I'm sure. Yeah. It's oppressive. And, and the, his belts would literally rot. Um, and, uh, so never getting, missed... getting wet from the sweat and then drying and then wet and then dry. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and, you know, even as he's, even as he scares me to death, scared me because we're really great friends now. Mm-hmm. Um, he recognized that, you know, uh, he had very intelligent kids. And so I, when I couldn't learn, when I couldn't figure out how to learn my times tables, I still can't multiply or add. He hired uh, uh, um, a tutor uh, to tutor me and took an extra job delivering flowers in order to make it happen. So, you know, I grew up in a very strict environment. You know, you had to be in before the streetlight came on. Nothing Nothing good could happen after a certain hour. And this was because they themselves were out in the streets at a relatively young age and they knew. Uh, what what awaited us. And so, uh, but then I, you know, I basically ran away from home at 16. Mm. Um, I didn't run away to the streets. I, I ran away to college. I left home in, in my junior year and jumped and went to Morehouse. Um, and I just had to get away. And um, that changed my life. We have uh, similarities in our upbringings in that I'm very good friends with my father now, but really rough upbringing, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental abuse. Uh, I'm one of 12 kids. They had a lot of kids. And, you know, 
I attribute it, and I don't know, we're, we're, we'll, we'll move on from here, but I think it's so interesting. I don't know what kinds of things, because that's a whole different book and story and conversation about like what shaped your dad, right? All those things, like you're starting to have kids when they're younger, all of that shapes you and what, you know, how his parents were, all of that. You know, my, I look back and, you know, my, my father was not mentored well. He was not, um, he came, he, he became a Christian when he was in his, you know, mid, mid twenties. And those Christians that were around him started like the, the first thing he was coming out of a very rough upbringing. And the first, all they were worried about was behavior. All they were worried about was like, change this and look the part and play the part. This is what it means to be a Christian, right? This is how you please God. And so he changed all these exterior things, but never went after like all these bad habits and all these bad things that he had been growing up with. And that just manifested itself. You know, once he, they started having lots of kids and we moved overseas and all this stuff, it just, it turned into something really crazy. And now, you know, years and years and years later, now that all of, yeah, my, my youngest sister just turned 18. And so we're all technically adults, all alive, all friends. We're all you know, still we're, we're a very happy family now, but not, not easily. Like it is only yeah. now in the last, like literally the last 10 years that we've all become friends again. And my dad has changed and, but it takes time and it's not always, not always fun when you're in it, not always fun oh. when you're growing up in it. Right. And so <clears throat> at what point in your journey, cause you're obviously like a, like a very prolific, uh, uh, academic, right. That is what you do for a living. You read and you write and you pontificate and you teach, when did that start? Was that when you were a teenager? I know you said you ran off to go to Morehouse, right? So was it then or did it happen before and you had these aspirations of becoming a teacher, becoming someone who would mentor other people? When did that start? So, you know, I grew up in a working class house, so there, there were no books, you know? Wow, no, yeah, sure. There were no books, you know, they're just the newspaper. Uh, the only thing that we, we had, you know, it was clear to us that our basic responsibility was to do well in school. And if we didn't do well in school, there would be hell to pay. Mm. Um, but, you know, every school came easy to me. And I didn't really have um, examples of what it meant to, to be excited about ideas. You know, I was into, I was, I was a kind of athlete nerd, a cool nerd in some ways. So I played baseball and, and was really good at it. But I also played Dungeons and Dragons, right? So, you know, I was reading, I, I, I got into fantasy. I remember reading the Tolkien trilogies and, mm. you know, uh, Terry Brooks's The Sword of Shannara, those sorts of books. And, and, and you know, just kind of detaching from one world and, and disappearing sure. into the world of fantasy in some ways. Uh, but there wasn't really an idea of what it, what it meant to, to, to think, of, to be, to live the life of the mind. Um, it was only when I went to Morehouse and I was just transformed. Mm. It, it was like being in a space where um, I, I finally acquired a language to imagine myself in the most expansive of terms. Wow. You know, and, and I, I met some, my best friends I met during those years. Uh, and then there was a philosophy professor named Aaron Parker who recognized that I had something in me. And I would just go sit in his office. And he would ask me questions. When are you going to get your life out of the trash can? And we're going to do stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I just decided I wanted to do what he did. And uh, didn't know how to go about doing it. One of my close friends said, you know, maybe you should, because I was a black nationalist at the time, you know, because all of this yeah. anger and rage yeah. manifest itself in a particular kind of ideology, right? Because I found the language 
to kind of describe my father's rage, right? So I'm like, this is what's wrong with this dude, right? Or something like that. As well as the fact that he's a very shy guy who had been bullied and he's dark skinned in a family of very light skinned people and all the stuff that he's been through. Um, I found a language, a vocabulary for him and uh, I inhabited. And so one of my close partners said, you know, maybe you should go to graduate school at Temple. Um, and so I went to African-American studies at Temple with Malefi Asante and I hated it. I was like, yo, this isn't. So we were reading a book uh, by Howard Weinand and Michael Omi called Racial Formation in the United States. And there's a chapter in that book on, on nationalism that I thought was bad. They had l- narrowed the definition of nas- black nationalism mm. too much. He, Howard Weinand actually taught on the seventh floor at Temple at the time. And so I went and found him. <laughs> and so then we started chatting, man, and started talking. And, that, and we started reading together. Um, and then he said, I want to hook you up with some folks that I think you might like. And so wrote a letter. And I found myself in London studying with Paul Gilroy and Stuart Hall. Wow. Um, <sighs> Did you ever imagine that would happen? Nah. Like again, coming from Mississippi, <laughs> Mississippi, you know, with a sweaty belted mail carrier dad, right? And now you find yourself sort of, yeah. I mean, again, I we, we can rehash your your whole bio, and it would take a long time to talk about all the things you've been yeah, a part of. But but it's been it's been kind of a crazy ride, right? To now where you're at, you're at Princeton. Is that where you you also live there? I assume, right? You live in, yeah, in, in right New Jersey. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean kind of a prestigious uh, place to be teaching at. What were some, kind of some of the, because I want to give I want to give the bulk of our time to um, your work and your book and kind of, I, I want you to speak to us as a, not just a black man, but a black, uh, a teacher uh, about these times right now, because we are living in some really crazy fucked up sort of things that a lot of people are having a hard time. A, a lot of these listeners that are listening right now, they're amazing people. Most of them are white and they're trying to figure out how to be the best, you know, version of an American citizen as they can, right. And how to navigate it through and who to vote for and all that stuff. So we'll, we'll get to that. But in the last like minute of your, as we talk about your work, like bridge the gap between going to London and now, like what were some of the big sort of highlight things that have happened that have gotten you to this moment now where, you know, if people Google your name, if you go to YouTube, you're going to be on, you know, Trevor Noah, like, right. You're on Trevor Noah with the same background you're at here. Like you're, people are looking to you for help, right. Mm-hmm. They're looking to you for advice. And so real quickly bridge that gap and then we'll, we'll dive in. So when I got back from London, I was depressed. I didn't want to be in that program at all. And there was a major conference in African-American studies at the university of Wisconsin, Madison. It was at the time when Henry Louis Gates at Harvard and, and Malefi were at the height of their, their powers. And they asked Malefi Asante to bring a graduate student. I came and gave a, t- presented a paper and Cornell West was in the audience. Mm. And Cornell ca- came up to me. Um, someone came up to me and said, Cornell wanted to talk with me. Cornell invited me to a graduate seminar, the first graduate seminar in African-American studies ever to be taught at Princeton that he was team teaching with Nail Painter, a historian. And I drove up from Philly uh, to the seminar every Tuesday night. And uh, after, one of, after one of the sessions, we went out to eat and he asked me to come study with him. And I left Temple and went to Princeton. Everything has been a wrap ever since. Wow. 
because you know this is my Cornell is Cornell is my man. He's he taught me, and he he gave me a language uh, to ask another language. More importantly, gave me a set of questions to think with, and then he gave me an example mm. of how to live the life of the mind and be committed. So I'm in that tradition, and so from the moment I stepped foot on Temple's on a Princeton's campus. And started working with Cornell West, all of this became possible. Yeah. I didn't know the Cornell West connection. Uh, Cornell West, probably 50% of the time that I'd listen to him speak, I cry because there are very few people on planet Earth that are able to articulate ideas like he is. I mean, when he speaks about there was a clip that went sort of viral from 2018. It went sort of viral like this past week. People thought it was from right now and it wasn't, but he was on with, um, not Sean, uh, Tucker Carlson. And he was describing democratic socialism. Like what's the heart behind it, right? Mm-hmm. Who, who is this for? What are we trying to tackle with democratic socialism? Who is it trying to help? Right. And he goes on for a minute and a half. And at the end, you know, Tucker Carlson, who is a firebrand in his own right. And he's wild. He responds and says, well, if that's democratic socialism, I'm in. Like, I believe in all that shit. Like, I believe that. <laughs> and Cornell West is the kind of person that can get in front of anybody and share his vision, share his heart. And everybody just like, yeah, that's what I want too. Yeah. I want that as well. And so to know, I mean, it kind of makes sense now. It's all come together that he's been a mentor for all these years and kind of brought you into the Princeton sort of ecosystem and that's wild. That's really cool. I didn't know uh, that part. He, he loved me to death. He's the godfather of my son. We're close partners. We talk regularly. We read together regularly. Uh, we've been in a reading group for the last, what, month and a half this summer. It's been, Amazing. That's, it's just been that crazy. So it's been Amazing. Crazy. I love that. I love that. Well, people can go find out more about you know who, who you are and what you've done, right? So I don't want to cut you short, but we do have a limited mm-hmm. amount of time. You're a busy, busy man. Before we jump into all things, you know, James Baldwin and your book begin again. How are you, how are you feeling right now? Like in your core, you look, you look great. You're dressed to the nines. You're, you're, you're on this call and you're, you're, you're about, you've already explained some stuff that's really helpful. You're going to continue to do that. But like, how are you doing? I mean, these have been some very, I mean, you're a black man in America. So it's probably always been that way to some extent, right? This kind of tumultuous like war going on, but especially now where it just, it seems so like loud, all of it's so loud right now. How are you doing and how are you taking care of yourself? You know, I don't, I, well, I'm not doing the latter part. I'll be honest about that. There you go. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm trying to hold it together. Mm. You know, I mean, the walls are closing in on you. You're trying to, to break through the white noise and, and say something substantive. Um, at the same time, given my reading of American history, uh, I don't think we're going to do very well. Mm. Uh, you know, that, you know, so, so this, this is this convergence of hope and despair at the same mm. time um, uh, that, that I'm constantly navigating. Uh, and then there's the, the demands. I, you know, I've reached a phase of my career where, um, a lot of people are pulling on me and I have to mm. figure that out. I got to figure out how to live in this moment, in this time, how to, how to ensure that I have space so that I can breathe and think. Uh, so I'm not just running my mouth. 
you know, so it's it's a challenge um, uh, to keep one's footing mm. um, in a moment that seems to be to throw all of us off balance. You know, so I'm not I'm not any different than than many folk in that regard. Yeah, I just did a, a podcast a few hours ago that'll release around the same time yours does with Elizabeth Marvel. She's a you know an amazing actress from Homeland and and, mm-hmm. and Fargo and House of Cards. And one thing that was interesting about the conversation with her is she's never been on social media ever, like never stepped foot into this world. And so, you know, to to talk with her, a lot of our conversation was around how can we, and obviously it's not possible for so many of us, like my work exists, you know, at a smaller level than yours, but our work, we have to sort of engage conversations and be out there. Man, I told, I told her, I was like, I am so envious and sure I can put more, you know, checks and balances in my life to not get sucked into Ever the the craziness that is social media and all these conversations happening, but I was like, I am so fucking envious that you have never touched this <laughs> sometimes great, most of the time horrible thing called social media, and you don't you're not in those conversations. She gives so many damn. She's leading you know leading protests and you know phone banking and doing all this stuff right without having stepped into these toxic conversations that are happening, and so I, you know. You have yeah. to be in them. The nature yeah. of your work means that you have to be in it, and so. Um, and I've I been getting, I've been getting raked over the coals as of late. So you know, it it is what it is. It comes with the territory. What, right? what is what is that about? What if you can explain what, what like what's so going what on? happened? What happens is that you know when when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, I, I tweeted, "There's no middle ground. You have to choose a side." Yes. Uh, and that just triggered all of. Uh, the Hillary Clinton bots and and supporters who claimed that I was a Jill Stein supporter, who said that I didn't, you know, who argued that I, who, who say that in effect I helped produce Donald Trump, that I'm responsible wow. for Trump being in the in in the White House, and because I use my platform to criticize Hillary Clinton, um, my own. I argued in Democracy in Black at the time that if, unless the Democratic Party stepped up with a substantive program to speak to the misery of Black folk in this country, we should blank out. We should leave the presidential ballot blank and vote down ballot. And then I came back when they nominated Donald Trump and said, well, if you're in a battleground state, you can vote for Hillary Clinton. But if you're not, vote your conscience. And the whole idea was to try to break the back of Clintonism and it's stranglehold on the on the Democratic Party to try to push the party left, but you know people blame me uh, for 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 Trump, and you know you have to take it. They get their black people mixed up. I understand, uh, but yeah. you know it is it is what it is. But it's a mob, and they it just is. they just come at you over and over again, and you got to have the thick skin uh, in order to uh, in order to ignore it. But you know. It is what it is. We're so polarized, right? This this failed America, this failed experiment called the United States of America is so polarized in that we have to. The conversation is you have to choose. You have to, um, you have to pick a side, like like full on. You can't you can't oppose anybody on that side. You can't say, well, I'm going to go with this because I think it's the best decision. But this is super fucked up. That's what's happening right here. You can't say that has to be all in or all out. Right. And there's not much middle ground for, I mean, I, one of my friends this morning regarding this whole like Supreme court seat that is, you know, has everybody in a tailspin admitted like rightfully so. I mean, it's, it's wild right now. 
But he said, do you think if this was the Democrats, if this was the opposite, the opposing thing that was happening, do you think they would be putting someone up? And I said, yeah, yeah, they would, they would be putting up a nominee because at the end of the day, there is very little integrity at these, the, the highest level of office, right? It is truly my team needs to win at any and all costs. Even if I say the opposite thing that I said last week, I'm going to do it for the good of my team instead of what's the right thing to do here, right? right. And so, no, I'm not. Yes, I am very upset that uh, Mitch McConnell and uh, uh, all of these other, Lindsey Graham, they're all going back on their word. They're all going back on something they just said a few short years ago. I'm very upset because integrity is all we have. Trust is all we have. But I'm also not stupid and naive enough to think that my people, my people being, I generally side with Democrats, although I'm very, very, uh, uh, I'm very... I can see the problems all over the place, right? Um, we would do the same thing. We would do the same exact thing. We have done the same exact thing um, time and time again. And so it's it's a wild time. I do wish, I, I do hope that you will, um, yeah, try to, if you'll find ways. And I know it's not easy, but we, you know, finding ways to like stay healthy because I obviously want you in the, this for the long term, right? I want you, you continuing to speak into who we are and where we're going, right? Um, okay, I have a couple selfishly i have a couple things that i want to see happen in this conversation one is in in the next few minutes of our conversation i want you either to convince me to stay in the u.s or convince me to leave the u.s right and i'll explain why i grew up in i was born in new york but i grew up in guatemala spent six years traveling the world after high school and then finally landed back here you know mid-20s not one moment i'm 37 now not one moment since i landed here to now, have I felt at home here? I've, I feel like a citizen of the world. My passport says United States of America, but I don't feel comfortable here for a lot of the reasons. It's a lot of things that are happening now. I don't think this was never intended to be a country that for all people, there was, there was going to be life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. People adore, they love, they worship this document called the constitution, which is not for all people. And so I've always been in this sort of back and forth, like like always one foot out, always wanting to leave, but always also, you know, wanting to stay here and fight for, so that my kids can have a better existence here, or, you know, and then their kids can have a better existence here, right? And James Baldwin is one of the, the few people that really, really, truly gives me permission to think about leaving while still having a continued, you know, foot here, like in the conversation, still working, still fighting, but not necessarily having to be here in the midst of all of this craziness all the time. I mean, we are not happy here, right? If you look at all the happiest countries in the world, we're not even close. And, and all of the happiest countries are ones that do provide a more you know equitable solution, whether it's healthcare, work, time, paid time off, all of those things that make you happy. Um, they have those, they're doing them way better than we are. And yet we have hundreds of millions of people in this country that still not, they don't just think we're, we're, we're doing okay. They think we're doing great to the point where they're saying, you know, make America great again. Let's go back to some like heyday, you know, back when women couldn't vote, black people couldn't vote. I don't know. Like, I don't know what they're trying to go back to. Um, so that's where I'm at. I'm always like one foot in one foot here, one foot elsewhere and begin again was balm for my soul. Um, it really was because it, again, it, it brought me back and I never left the James Baldwin ecosystem, but brought me back <laughs> to who, who James was and what 
what James fought for and the legacy that still lives on. I mean, he's still very much in our hearts and minds and your book, you know, helps us do that. So describe Begin Again, where it came from, and then let's get into, get into a few questions while we have some time today. So hopefully I'll be able to answer, answer the question um, or to convince you of one side or the other. Um, but Begin Again uh, emerges in my despair and disillusionment. Mm. Right? I'm like, these folk did it again. Mm. Like, here we are, a generation removed, at least two, removed, three, removed from uh, the mid-20th century, generation or two removed from the 20th century, and, and the country has now betrayed us again. Everyone's talking about America had turned a corner with mm. the election of Barack Obama in 2008, and what we saw for real was this kind of doubling down on the country's ugliness, the vitriol of the Tea Party, the voter, voter ID laws, voter suppression, and then we elected Donald Trump. And I was worried about all of those kids from 2014 who risked everything in Ferguson, who had been organizing to to change the criminal justice system and who were now kind of trying to figure out next steps and some of whom were dying. Mm. Many of the activists in Ferguson were, at least so they say, committing suicide. And, And I was worried, how would they find their feet in this moment when Uh, The country has decided to double down on whiteness again, on this idea that the country was a white nation in the vein of old Europe and was asserting that fact aggressively and and people were beginning to act aggressively on these views. So I was like, I'm living in a time of betrayal. How can I muster the energy? Where do I find the resources to push this damn rock up the hill again? Hmm. And I knew that Jimmy had been through this too. He went through the heyday of the civil rights movement and at a different level of intensity, he experienced it. And then, of course, they, they assassinated Dr. King. And in 69, he tries to commit suicide, a failed relationship and the kind of collapse mm-hmm. uh, after King's assassination. And he had to try to pick up the pieces. And so what I wanted to do was to kind of walk with Jimmy in his despair and in his disillusionment. And in, in walking with him, not necessarily just writing about him, but walking with him, maybe I could find resources that would help me and others spot, respond to our moment. And so Begin Again emerged out of that, even the title, the last, it came from his last novel, Just Above My Head, you know, responsibility is not lost, it's abdicated, he says. And if one refuses abdication, then one begins again. Mm. And you kind of go, damn, what does that mean? Let me check mm. that in its essence. Let me think through this. And boom, what I found uh, was the book. But it took me going to Heidelberg mm-hmm. for it all to come together. I had to get out of this place. I'm beginning to try to make a, a case for, for your, for your, for, to, to convince you. Baldwin insisted. I knew I had to start the book outside of the country because I had to find distance between me and, this, and the United States. Because while you're here and you're in it, you're constantly having to battle and fight just to keep yourself upright, just to get up in the morning. You're constantly having to deal with this place that's coming at you. Um, outside of the country, at least I have the distance so that I can reflect on my experience. I can reflect on the country. So initially I was in St. Thomas and then Hurricane Maria blew me back home. And then I found myself in Heidelberg. And I was thinking I was going to write an intellectual biography focused around this period. 
And then I saw the police. I wasn't in Heidelberg two hours. Mm. And I saw the police, four white police officers with their knee in the back and the neck of a black man who was screaming at the top of his lungs. And I didn't have to go on television to explain that. So I went back to my flat and I just wrote and wrote. Mm. And what I wrote became the introduction to begin again. What that moment when you saw a black man outside of America with the 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 knee of of four, the knees of four black or four white police officers and it's back like did what did that do for you was there a moment in there where you were like shit I'm not even in the United States and this is happening here was there a moment where you were like this is everywhere you know I think what I said and you know there was a young graduate student who uh was with me who was just really excited because he had been reading my work for a long time and he turned beet red. He was so embarrassed. And I just thought to myself, man, white folk are white folk, no matter where I am, this is deep. No matter what language they speak, you know, white folk can be white folk. Mm. And I looked at him and he didn't have, um, he turned beet red, as I said, and he said, I'm sorry. And I don't know what he was apologizing for, you know. I do, but, you know, I just sure. looked at it. I looked at him. And then we just, then he just, I didn't say anything. We just went back to, to my flat. Wow. And I just started writing. That's wild. And, and you know, an amazing book. I'm going to encourage people over and over again to buy this book, like, ASAP. It will, it will help you so much. So James, at one point, said, if I don't get out of this country, I'm either going to kill someone or be killed, right? Yeah. And obviously I'm, um, you know, there, there was even the time when he, he was refused service, right? And he threw close to you. Right down route one. Right, yeah. right down route one. He threw, what did he throw, a coffee cup? Or like, he threw something at the, the, the waitress and had to run for his life. Like if he would have stayed, he would have been lynched, right? Inevitably. Yeah, absolutely. And so talk to me about, talk to us about James Baldwin leaving. Like, what did that do for him? Him getting out of the country? Because again, he never stopped having a voice still. I mean, we're in 2020. He has a loud voice still today, but he needed to get out. So talk about that for a second. What did he do? For those that aren't familiar with, with James Baldwin, he had to get out and he went for a long time and he, and, and he was able to accomplish, I think, much more, maybe I'm wrong, but well thought out work because again, he wasn't in, you had to get out of the U.S. to write this book. He yeah. had to get out to do his best work, essentially. So what was happening there? Why, why get out versus, uh, I, know, I know I'm simplifying it, but King you know, died here doing the work that he was supposed to, right? And here in Memphis, three hours west of me. Like, you know, he, he, he died here and he didn't leave. Uh, and, but James had to leave. So talk to me about that. So I think it's important for us to know, you know, he's born in, in, in August of 1924 in Harlem. And he's not born in Sugar Hill. So he's not a member of the literati. He's not born of, of means. He's born in the ghetto. Mm. Uh, Baldwin knew real hunger. He knew, he understood what it meant not to have anything. Mm. Uh, to be deprived, to play in trash and, and to imagine himself um, as, well, not imagine himself, but to go to bed hungry. He knew that. And so what we have here is this extraordinary act of will. Someone who doesn't go to college, who's from the hood, 
who literally wills himself into becoming one of the most amazing writers, one of the most extraordinary writers in the world. He could not do that here. If he stayed in the United States, he would have had to slip into the role of having to be a breadwinner for his brothers and sisters. He would have had to help his family. He would have, as he said, he would have had to, you know, get a job at the post office, get a wife and live that life, right? Uh, and Baldwin's temperament did not lead him to, to, to accept that as his, as his fate. He also understood that, that, you know, the reality of the United States had choked the life out of his stepfather. Mm. That his stepfather believed what the world said about him. And that that belief took root in his stepfather's soul and then blossomed as hatred. And that hatred then proceeded to turn on his soul. And Baldwin felt that blossoming, that blooming in his own spirit. So when he says either I was going to get killed or be killed, what he's talking about is the rage that was always at, you know, bubbling on the verge of bubbling over on the verge of being transformed into hatred. And there's nothing that good, good can come of that. In fact, the hatred can, will make us as monstrous as the people who, exactly. are, who, are, who are doing what they're doing. So, you know, he'll tell the story that he ended up in Paris just because we could have been anywhere. It's not true. He ended up in Paris because Richard Wright's there. He ends up in Paris because there's a, a large ex black expat community there. And Richard Wright, who only had an eighth grade education, was critical in, 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 in some ways opening up pathways and opportunities for Jimmy to become the writer that he imagined himself to be. And it's, in, it's not only from Harlem, the ghetto of Harlem, but it, the alleyways of Greenwich Village and the alleyways of Paris. This, this, is, these are, this is Baldwin's postgraduate education, you know? And it's in these spaces that he, that he, Dare to write Go Tell It on the Mountain. Dare to write the essays that would become, you know, critical pieces like Many Thousands Gone or Notes of a Native Son, or the which ended up being an edited volume called The Notes of Native Son of a Native Son. So it is an extraordinary act of will. Mm. So and he could not do that here because we are always, especially in the period in which he grew up confronting a world organized to keep us from imagining ourselves in the most expansive of terms. You see? So in order to even just, in order to even acquire the, in order to, in order to even act on the hubris that he could be what he was imagining himself to be, he had to get the hell out of this place. But he was a transatlantic commuter. You see, because Baldwin says, and nobody knows my name, he says, I couldn't just, I thought all I had to do was leave, but the stuff was deposited in my gut. I took it with me. Mm, sure. And so I had to get the distance from the country in order to think about the country. So Baldwin never leaves America because America is his, is his subject. We do this all the time, right? The way that you're putting it right now, when we need to get away from work, what do we do? We take vacations. When we, like right now, I'm trying to write, you're, you're a very prolific author. I'm trying to write my first book. I have like so many projects going on. Let's give a damn. It's like five or six different companies. And I'm trying to get them off the ground. And my agent's on me like crazy to get, get this book written. 
And one of the reasons that I cannot, I just talked to my wife the other day. I said, if I'm going to write this book, I need to take a month off and go hide somewhere and really get into it and do nothing but write this book because my current structure where I'm, you know, meeting with people and doing all these podcast interviews and growing all these arms. And then I have consulting clients that pay my bills, right? Like keeping everybody <laughs> happy right, does not allow me to really get into this. So, and that's a book. We're talking about something much bigger here. You know, one of the, the wild things about America, which I think is, I could say, I've traveled enough of the world, 30-ish countries to know that I think this is, this is unique-ish to America is that, you know, as Baldwin said, changes all the time without ever changing at all, right? There is so much talk of change. People look at what happened with, you know, and I, I'm a big fan of Barack Obama, but I don't look at it through, I don't think he is perfect in any way. I mean, he still uses language and other progressive, you know, politicians use language about like, you know, we're getting better. We're, go, we're, we're heading in, a, in an upward trajectory. And I'm like, no, we use a lot of language and we're always advancing in quotations. We're always making progress, but we are not making any tangible progress that, that in the next hundred, at this pace, our kids as kids as kids won't see the fruit of work that's being done right now. I mean, our, our for-profit prison system, our ridiculous healthcare, like we could go on and on. These things are not changing anytime soon. I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer at this point in history to defund, I push further, abolish the police. We can do much better than that. And there are hundreds of millions of Americans saying, hell no, you're not going to do that. Like we need to, we need to actually give them more money. My city, I live in Nashville right now, not for long, but I live here now. And they're giving more money to the police so that they can train better and they can get better. And that's not going to, that, that there's no proof that that's actually going to work. It's only going to empower the powers that be. It's only going to empower what's already been happening, which is abuse. 62 days protests were down at the state capitol over the summer 62 days 24 hours a day and i was down there for a few of the days to we're talking to get a conversation with the governor that was one of the requests we just want governor bill lee to come talk to us number two remove a bust of nathan bedford forest that has been in our capitol building for far too long those are the two requests they arrested over 200 over the course of 60 days they arrested over 200 um protesters on bogus bullshit charges, um, like, like, you know, vandalizing when his writing was sidewalk chalk, you know, taping signs to walls, then they were doing everything they could. That is who we are. We are, we are changing all the time without ever changing at all. There is no real tangible evolution happening here. And that is why I don't, I think you described it perfectly a few minutes ago. You said it's a, it's a balance between hope and despair. I mean, I'm constantly teeter tottering between those two. Some days you know, I feel. Go yeah, ahead. no, no, no. You know, I think it's, you know, uh, this is why, you know, the book opens with the lie. Yeah. You know, this is why you got to just, you know, lay, lay it bare, right? Everything you've just said about America always changing, but never changing that can happen because we tell ourselves this story about our inherent goodness. We tell ourselves this story that we're always already on the road to a more perfect union. We tell ourselves this story that we're an example of democracy achieved. When we actually look at our practices, we know that that's not true. This is, as you say, this is who we are, right? So when people say this is not America, I'd be like, to hell, that's not true. That's not right, right? And so, so, so part of the, what Baldwin insisted upon and what I insist upon is that we have to you know, tell the truth of who, of what we've done and who we are in order to release ourselves into the possibility 
of being otherwise. You know, if you everything, not everything can be changed if it, if it's not faced, but nothing can be changed if it isn't faced. To paraphrase yep. Baldwin's quote from from 1962, so the country is constantly engaging in an evasion because the country is like an adolescent; it refuses to grow up. Yeah, and, you know, I said to someone the other day. You got to leave youth behind in order to reach for wisdom. Yes. And, but our country is so obsessed with, with youthful vigor and, and it's an adolescent. It's, it's never, never land mm. full of lost boys and lost girls who don't want to be held responsible or accountable. So if we have a country that lives a fantasy, that's always concerned about the loss of innocence then the idea of confronting the reality of who we are for real, of seeing ourselves in Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck Mm. and hearing what we've done in his cries, man, it's not only that my son is going through this, I went through it, my father went through it, his father went through it. And lo and behold, if we don't do something right here, right now, uh, my son's children, if he ever has any, will go through it, you know. You are, you know, you're much more informed in, in these conversations than most people listening. And even me, even though I spend a lot of time in it as well, help us in our last few minutes together sure. to like, what happens next? We have, we have a very content, we're, we're maybe more polarized than ever before. Um, we have a, a president in a current in an administration that is trying to whitewash. They're trying to stay in the never, never land, right. That we just described right in, in the book, we have to allow this innocent idea of America to die. It is irredeemable. But that does not mean we are too, right. We have, they don't want to grow up and they don't want to face. We have president Trump who's trying to get money right now to fund this, this bullshit propaganda he's calling the right version of history, right? Because we're, uh, you know, apparently this, you know, 1619 project and all these other things are there, there it's, that's, they're all lies, right? We're just trying to make white people look bad. And it's like, no, it has nothing to do. It has nothing to do necessarily with, with white people, like period. It has everything to do with white people have done a lot of fucked up things that they've never come to terms with hundreds of millions of Americans want to say, well, I did, I never owned slave. I, I never got that argument because that doesn't work in any other, in any other part of our lives. That doesn't work to, to push off responsibility because I wasn't the one to do it. And here we are as a country saying, well, I'm not like reparations out of the question, all like re- abolishing the police out of the question. We've got to just make what we have better instead of really recognizing that we are, we have to almost Maybe we have to like really truly crash and burn, like really, I mean, just unravel so that we can start at, and, and here's the problem. This is, the, so that's what I believe needs to happen, but I don't think we can. That's the problem. We are, we are one of my very conservative friends. I've mentioned this a few times and I'll keep mentioning it because I think it was, it's such an easy uh, uh, thought, but I, I, I never thought about it before. He said, America is too big. It's too big. It's 350 million people. Can you get that many people to come to terms with 
where we've come from, who we are currently, and we have to change everything. Like, can that happen? You look at the happiest places on earth. You look at the happiest countries. First of all, they're being led by women, not megalomaniacal white men. They are being led by women. They're being led by progressive men. And they're also a lot smaller, right? Five, 10, 15, 20 million. Kind of Germany's on the bigger side of put together countries that are trying to do things right. Our country is so big. Is that, do you agree with that? Or does that make sense? Or do you think that a country this size could make the changes necessary? You know, this is the richest country in the history of the world. So it has the means. It just doesn't have the will. There you go. Right. I mean, if you have a society that's predicated upon an economic philosophy of extraction mm. that presumes that certain folk are disposable, then you're going to see what and who they value and how they budget. So, and then they're going to convince us and tell us the lie that there are limited resources. You know, we can't do all the things that folks want us to do. Uh, That's not true. It's just a lie. And so I think at the end of the day, it's not about, to me, to me, it's not necessarily about our size. It's about our will. Hmm. It's about what these people are willing to do and why they're not willing to do it. Hmm. Many are just, it's abject greed. And it's a profound investment in the idea that this country must remain a white nation in the vein of old Europe. And when those two things, Donald Trump sits in the sweet spot of those two things. Sure. Of greed and racism. That's where he rests right there. And he exploits it for his end. You know, so, you know, you asked me in the last few, few minutes where we are to just kind of say, well, where buckle up, doc. Nothing about November is going to resolve anything. No, 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 no. Yeah, exactly. Buckle up. We're, we're in, we're in, we're in the eye of the storm. The tail is coming. Yeah. I grew up on the coast. The tail is coming and it might turn back around on us given, given the way climate change has changed the, you know, how these storms work. So, so part of what I do know is this, in every moment in which the country has had an opportunity for it to be otherwise, white supremacy is the umbilical cord wrapped around the baby's neck and it chokes the life out of it. Mm. Every single time. We got to be better midwives. We can't tinker around the edges. We know the place is broken. It is clear it's broken. It's broken economically. It's broken politically. We're broken socially. Mm. The very fabric of the country has shredded. It's coming apart at the seams. And it seems to me that we're in this moment right now where we have to dream big dreams. Or to put it in a different language, we have to take Cole's train giant steps. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Make somebody go, wait, what did he just play? We have to do something at the level of the social that is that remarkable. The question is, do we have the will? I'm a, I'm a firm believer in Baldwin, in mm. this sense, of what Baldwin, how Baldwin put it. The only way we can even dare to build a new Jerusalem is that we have to give up on the idea of trying to convince some of these folk to believe otherwise. And instead, invest our energy in building a world where those noxious views have no quarter to breathe. 
I'm tired of trying to compromise. I'm tired of tired of trying to convince. I want you and me and others of like mind and spirit to do everything we can, to risk everything we can in trying to build a world where no matter the color of your skin, no matter your zip code, no matter who you love, no matter your gender, no matter your physical ability, that not only can you dream dreams, you can make those dreams a reality. And it seems to me that requires that we dream of a way of creating selves that don't need enemies, to echo Jimmy. And we'll see what happens from there, you know? I love that. I I, I wish we had two, three more hours to talk, maybe another time, but that's a good place to stop. (laughs) You're a a busy man. Uh, Friends, Democracy in Black, in in a shade of blue, uh, two great books that you've written. Also, again, I can't... I can't say enough about Begin Again, James Baldwin's American. It's Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Please buy this book. Please devour it. Share it with your friends. Eddie, thank you so much for joining us today. This was this was amazing. Again, not enough time, but I'm so grateful for you. I appreciate you, Doc. Keep fighting. That's it for today, my friends. Thank you so much for spending time with Eddie and me today. To learn more about what Eddie is doing or saying, just Google his name. And also follow Eddie on Twitter at ESGLAUDE. That's at E-S-G-L-A-U-D-E. And of course, to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com and follow us on all social media at Let's Give a Damn. A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for showing up. I love you so much. I'm grateful for you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. Be safe, keep giving a damn, and until next time, peace. Peace.